Hello, and welcome to Banjo's Drinks and Drinking Gourds, How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast at the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex. And I'm Rachel. Today, we're busting, or not as the case may be, some of the more common history myths that are somewhat embedded in the public consciousness, like the persuasive idea of pineapples representing hospitality in the colonial period. Sorry, folks, exotic and expensive fruits weren't wasted by being used as centerpieces or exterior decoration. You may or may not have heard of some of these, but they do linger and are repeated, especially in our digital age, when anybody can post on the internet. There have been a few scholars who have worked on debunking history myths and podcasts devoted to the topic. My personal go-tos are the book, Death by Petticoat, American History Myths Debunked by Mary Miley Theobald, and the Professor Buzzkill History Podcast. I highly recommend both of those to anyone interested in finding the truth behind the myths. I will say, however, that this episode is in no way intended to shame or call out anyone who has held these myths as truth. This is our attempt to both educate and entertain as we debunk some of the more common mistaken beliefs about life in the past. And so in no particular order, we're going to discuss some of the weird and sometimes completely bizarre ideas that someone posted on the internet and somebody else talked about. Repeat as needed. And one of the ones that always gets me is the term, don't throw the baby out with the bath water, going on the assumption that when people had a bath, the oldest person, usually the father, would go first, and then the mother, and then the oldest children in order, and the last one, which would be very filthy water, would be the baby, and sometimes they would forget about the baby, and therefore it gets thrown out with the bathtub. This is completely not true, because most times in almost all of our farms, when people are taking a bath, they are filling up a basin with hot, soapy water, and it's more or less a sponge bath. There is no bathtub Truthfully, if there was a bathtub, you couldn't pick it up and throw the water out anyway. That was very popular about 10 years ago, but strangely, it's died out. Thank goodness, but it's not true. And then we are going to go to one of the other myths that goes around, and that is how tall people were in the past. Most people think they were much, much shorter, and as time goes by, we get taller. That is not true. And usually this comes around because of lower doors or ceilings in historic houses that actually served a purpose or a couple of purposes. It wasn't to accommodate height. With the lack of standardization in construction, the overarching goals in lower doorways were to preserve materials and support heat retention. The door was the largest source of heat extraction in the home, so a lower door allowed less heat to escape. Same with lower ceilings. If you're only heating by a fire on one side of the room, you want the heat to stay in the living part of the room, not up by the ceiling given that heat rises. Certain building materials like stone also required interior doors to be lower for load-bearing reasons. As for a side note, English people tend to believe that a lot of the old houses were made out of old ship timbers. When the ship wrecked along the coast, people would go up and gather the wood and then build a house out of it. There is some truth to this. There are homes that can be actually documented being built out of old ship timbers. But for the overwhelming majority, like almost all of the homes in English medieval times, they were not made out of old ship's timbers. A lot of times carpenters would like to build out of green wood rather than wood that's been on a ship and been rotted in the ocean for a while. And furthermore, the act of transporting the shipwreck to wherever you're building in the interior is just going to take too much time and would be very difficult. But it is something 
that a lot of English people do believe that a lot of the old houses were made out of old ship timbers. As far as height is concerned, well, people weren't that far off the modern average. Studies at Ohio State and Oxford University have provided a timeline of average heights for throughout Europe. The early 17th century in England boasted an average of 5'7 for men and around 5'2 for women. Certainly not a discrepancy that would have required lower doors or shorter beds. This is where we need to add a little bit about height. People who are sickly or malnourished during a growth period are not going to reach their full height potential. And so if a famine happens to hit in you or during a growth period, it is going to affect your overall health. So there is some fluctuation in this 5.7 and 5.2 for England. And we were discussing in our Worst Years podcast that some of the worst years in England were in the 1640s and 1650s. And this is a period where people would be shrinking because there is not enough food to go around. There is a major depression and it's going to have an overall effect on the height. And that is why today, if you look at societies around the world, the Dutch are known for being the tallest. And one of the reasons is their diet is really good. And interestingly, North Koreans are known as being some of the shortest people. And that is because they have chronic food shortages. And it's a nation that is isolated and can't tap into modern markets. So getting back to our time period and in the past, all I'm trying to say is that for the most part, people were not as short as we think they were. It's also interesting to note that colonial American men were on average three inches taller in the same period with an average of 5'8". Modern American male height is 5'9". Women have only gained about two inches in America since the revolutionary period, with a modern American average of 5'4". One of the reasons Americans were healthier is the climate was much better and the water, believe it or not, was much healthier because people hadn't been living next to water polluting it as much. Now, the last thing I want to mention about height is during the 19th century, when most of the Western world was industrializing, this actually had an effect on height. Factory workers are working incredibly long hours, sometimes up to 16 hours a day. The food that they are eating is of poor quality and not very nutritious. This is a job that actually also makes the average life expectancy go down. A lot of times early on in the 19th century, children as young as seven or eight are working in these factories for long hours. This is going to have an overall effect on their height. So during the 19th century, people who are tended to work in factories in poor conditions are actually shrinking compared to their agricultural ancestors who were working on farms, usually had gardens, and a lot of the food they were eating was much healthier and was actually produced near their site. So that is something to take into consideration. And it's really only after World War II with the advent of good roads, refrigeration, that people have gotten started to get taller. And there is an effect of people in certain societies actually getting taller. And as I mentioned, the Dutch, the average male is 6'2", and the average woman is about 5'9", in the Netherlands today. There's also an associated myth about height that the beds were short in the past as people were shorter. We get that one a lot on the Irish farm as the bed is tucked into the outshot or the small projection away from the main room. Mary Miley Theobald deals with this on her blog, History Myths Debunked, where she mentions that the modern eye, especially the modern American eye, is used to queen or king-size mattresses and standalone beds, not beds surrounded by architecture on three sides. This can lead to a kind of optical illusion made stronger by the plumpness of the straw ticks and the bolsters and pillows at one end 
that supported people as they slept reclined rather than supine. The bed in our Irish farm is actually around six feet, which is plenty of space for most modern Americans, let alone the 18th century Irish farmer. Let us turn to another type of myth involving food and drink. Lots of these seem to linger on. For example, there is a phrase, boot of ale, that crops up occasionally, and we're not talking about the German drinking game of das boot or Bierstiefel, to be accurate. With the glass in the shape of the boot, which has its own late 19th and early 20th century origins, there seems to be a misunderstanding that the 17th century English were drinking beer, as all Europeans did, but using their boots as vessels. They did have leather tankards or jacks lined with waterproof pitch, so perhaps that could be the source there. Personally, I think this is a corruption of butt of ale, which was an actual measure of ale. A butt was a specific size of cask made to hold the equivalent of roughly 130 U.S. gallons. So yes, a butt load is a definite measure. As we mentioned before, brune was often a home-based process that shifted to commercialization in the late 17th century. Check out the one drink or two episodes for more on that. But this would not be the first case of word drift, so I'm going to stick with that theory. Sticking with the beverage theme for a moment, let's go to one of my favorites, the ubiquitous colonial brick of tea. Sorry, folks, this one isn't true. Yes, bricks of tea existed in China and were certainly used as currency throughout the surrounding region. Yes, the English versions were aware of this, including the habit of certain populations in that region to crush the tea from the bricks and mix with milk, salt, and butter. But... By the 18th century, the majority of tea imported was loose leaf. Those lovely tea caddies you see at historic homes were certainly not built to hold tea bricks. According to the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum's own website, it was loose tea that the Patriots threw, or raked as accounts relate, into the harbor. Such imagery as tea piled like haystacks certainly doesn't work if it were brick tea. So yes, those compressed tea bricks are interesting and historical, they just weren't widely used outside of Asia. Instead, loose leaf tea of many kinds was imported, purchased at a dry goods store, and kept safely locked by the mistress of the house in a specially designed tea caddy. Both green and black teas were popular in the 18th century, with varieties like the green hyson, black buhi, and souchong making up the majority of the chests thrown overboard during the Boston Tea Party in 1773. Not that it was really a great loss, as the tea was by then a few years old, having been stored in East India Company warehouses in London after being picked in 1770. Shifting from food for a moment, let's address the concern and myth that we continually receive on our West African and Eastern Woodland Indian sites. For some reason, there is a deep-set belief that the Irish and Scottish, coming over as indentured servants or transported as prisoners, were enslaved and treated as badly, if not worse, than the enslaved Africans and Indians used throughout the American and Caribbean colonies. This is most definitely 100% untrue. I'll refer to you to the many, many articles that have debunked this alternative fact in the last five years, following the spread of such disinformation. The unfortunate fact is that this so-called forgotten history is used by white supremacist narratives to undercut the brutal truth of the African and Indian enslavement. I cannot stress enough that the transportation of prisoners and indentureship is in no way similar to race-based hereditary chattel slavery. But this is the topic of an upcoming podcast, so we'll leave it there. The most ubiquitous myth I hear repeated, especially when I'm cooking on site, is to watch my skirts, since apparently most women died by having their petticoats caught on fire and thus burned to death. 
There's an additional caveat to the typical visitor concern, that I should wet my petticoats, as that's how women avoided a grisly death by burning. Okay, let me take a deep breath and unpack that. First of all, if you've never worn petticoats, they can be awfully heavy and tend to wrap around your legs at just the wrong moment to impede movement. Wet petticoats are a thousand times worse. I can't imagine trying to bustle around the kitchen with wet hens dragging along with me, picking up all sorts of dust and ashes from the floor. Second, I know I have a strong situational awareness around the fire. When I was first starting with open hearth cooking, I had a sort of constant vigilance going on that has since dampened down into a subconscious awareness of myself and my garments in relation to the fire, hot cookware, spitting oil, and so on. Similar to what I imagine chefs and line cooks develop. Third, the leading cause of death for women throughout history has been disease, whether epidemic, endemic, or congenital, with childbirth and its complications following well before burning to death. So how did that myth get started? Definitely not related to clothing in the 17th and 18th centuries. Typical clothing was made from linen and wool, with cotton growing in popularity in the 19th century after the invention of the cotton gin made it a cheaper fabric. A lady who had a silk dress would certainly not be cooking in it. Linen, cotton, and wool definitely don't burst into flame, as seems to be the mental picture of the general public. If anything, those fibers smolder, making it easy to put out and simply have a small charred spot that you need to patch. In the late 19th century, however, women started to favor thin cotton dresses that would, in fact, be easier to catch on fire. There are definitely reports of women who did die from burns, but it was just as likely that it was from the infection that set in through the burned skin rather than going up in flames while cooking. Men and children were also reported as dying from burning clothes. So that one is firmly in the debunked category. Thank you all for your concern, but really, interpreters know what they're doing and are fairly safe around the fire. Well, there is an interesting story here at the museum. I was working with my coworker Sally, and we were doing a play on the Irish farm for what we called Creepy Tales, and it was the John Lewis story. And one of the parts is I have to run out and kill Mungo Campbell with my shillelagh, which is part of the John Lewis myths which we might have to do a podcast on the future talking about that. But anyway, when I came back, there were all these people all around Sally. And I said, what's going on? And Sally had caught on fire and her dress was on fire and they were all putting it out. And so I guess that's a case of someone catching on fire. All right. Well, I think that doesn't quite debunk the entire story because there's probably a caveat in there. Yes, there is a big caveat on that. Sally was wearing many petticoats. The outer layer petticoat she was wearing, when we came and looked at it and were wondering why did it catch on fire, it was a modern fabric. I believe it was cotton with polyester in it, so it was obvious it caught on fire. And Sally, being a good sport, we figured out that the next week we were going to try something. So we were baking bread on the English farm, and we purposely were trying to catch Sally on fire to see if any of her skirts would catch on fire. If you with OSHA, please just ignore that story. <laughs> And we could not do it. She got as close to the fire as possible. And when we looked at it at the end of the day, when she we had changed clothes, the fabric smolded quite a bit. And one of the things that Rachel was mentioning, one of the reasons why women are wearing so many layers or so many petticoats is so they can cook and get closer to the fire without being burned. Trust me, the heat from a fire on your legs when you aren't wearing that many petticoats is fairly unbearable. So there is rhyme and reason to both fashion and fibers being used. On the topic of clothing is one of the most common comments that a visitor will say to an interpreter, and that is, aren't you hot in all of that clothing? This brings up a whole host of issues, is that no, actually, more layers does not necessarily mean that you are going to be warmer. 
A lot of it has to do with the type of fibers you're wearing. Same thing with burning up. You're not wearing any sort of modern fiber. You're not wearing fibers that are going to close up with sweat when they get wet. Linens, wool, and to some extent cotton allow the air to breathe through the fabric even when covered in sweat. More modern fibers tend to have those gaps close up when it gets wet, thereby decreasing any sort of breathability in those textiles, thereby making your body temperature increase. Because of course your core, where most of your clothing is tied on, is going to be what is actually keeping you the warmest on hot days. And another aspect of that is being covered up more. The sun isn't actually on your skin, so you're not actually getting sunburned, and that actually makes a difference too. And a third factor, which is really not historic, we're just used to it. If you work outside every single day of your life, you get used to the hot temperatures. It's strange, but it is true. We've been harvested the last week, which is hard, busy work, and even though we are sweating a lot, I never found it unbearable or too hot. And along with the covering up from the sun, I have a short sleeve gown for my 1820s summer wardrobe, and I have a long sleeve shift in my 18th century German wardrobe. And when it's been 92 the last couple of days, I have found the long sleeve German shift has been more comfortable than wearing my short sleeve linen gown, largely because one, it's billowy, it's letting air flow through, it's going to keep that, again, keep that sun off of you. And that is also why women aren't covered up purely for modesty reasons. They're largely covered up to keep the sun off of their neck. That's what kerchiefs do. That's what fichus do. That's what a lot of these collars and coverings will do for women is to keep the sun off of your neck. And going back, we can now turn it into the winter where it's the other way around. Aren't you cold in the costumes you're wearing? And strangely enough, it's amazing how warm wool is when you're wearing a wool jacket or a wool doublet. And particularly, this is where, for ladies, the layers come back in. Because for decency's sake, you wear at least two petticoats. You start throwing wool petticoats in there into the mix. You're going to start trapping your heat because, of course, wool is great for both breathability and for heat retention because it's actually going to work with you, hence why we have smart wool socks today for hiking. It's going to be sweat wicking, but it's also going to keep your feet warm during winter. The other aspect, we are talking more about what the working people are wearing or the laboring people more like the peasants. I think it would be very different if you're dressed more what the nobility would be wearing, where some of those clothes are pretty ridiculous and would probably make you pretty miserable. For example, market bonnets are very popular headwear for ladies in the colonial period. Oftentimes with reenactors or with living history sites, you see the very popular black silk market bonnet. Silk is very less breathable than any other natural fiber. It's going to trap all that heat, particularly black silk. And of course, your head is where a lot of your body heat is centered. So honestly, what we see most often in the frontier regions is that these market bonnets are being made of linen or even some cottons, if you add that little bit extra money, or even wool. But they're being made of fibers other than the fancy silk that you see often in town. The other factor and this one is a climate situation, we know in the 17th and 18th century are some of the colder centuries in the last 1,000 years. It's the time period where many historians call it the Little Ice Age. And for England in the 17th century, looking at the few records where there are actual temperatures throughout the summer, 
seems to suggest that they very rarely, if ever, had a day that went above 70 degrees. And more likely, a summer's day is going to be in the 50s or 60s and drop down into the 40s at night. So how they are dressed for the type of work they are doing makes a lot of sense for those temperatures. Where the English run into a lot of trouble is when they go to Jamestown, are in a hot, humid, swampy condition, and they're still wearing the same type of clothes. And that's where the acclimation comes into play, because once you do start acclimating to it and you're living outside, working outside continuously, you do become comfortable in your circumstances very quickly. Again, largely due to the nature of the fibers they're wearing. Here's another slightly food-related myth that people in the colonial period got lead poisoning from their pewter plates. This one is slightly true, slightly false. Was pewter often alloyed with lead? Definitely. But it wasn't the only or even possible the most significant source of lead pre-colonial and early colonial people were exposed to, especially among the lower classes. Lead-glazed pottery, paint, leaded glass were all dangers people lived with every day. And while it has been proven by our isotope analysis that colonial people had a significant greater amount of lead in their bones than modern people do, the causes of lead poisoning were largely unknown. They did have an understanding of lead taken internally as a problem, but the alloying and mixing of lead into everyday items seems to have not been considered a factor. No, instead they decided to take lead and smear it on their faces as part of their makeup. But related to that one is that tomatoes weren't eaten in the colonial period because people thought they were poisonous. I've had visitors tell me that colonists thought so because the acid in the tomatoes ate into the pewter of their plates. The thought that the tomato was poisonous is certainly true, but only for certain time periods. As for the issue with tomatoes and pewter, well, the lead content Alex just mentioned was a much more critical problem in poisoning. But let's look at what people were growing, what cookbooks of the time were saying, and go from there to get a timeline of the tomato. Not a single reference to tomatoes is made in The Good Huswife's Handmaid for the Kitchen from 1594, nor is there a reference in The Accomplished Cook, published in 1660. Even the later receipt books like the quintessential 1774 Art of Cookery by Hannah Glass or the 1810 Housekeeper's Instructor neglect the poor tomato. However, Mary Randolph's Virginia Housewife of 1824 is full of tomato receipts. By the 1840s, both Mrs. Acton and Precatelli mentioned tomato or tomato in their receipts, obviously following the trend of using the fruit in the new century. Whether this was due to a move towards ceramic dishes over pewter and therefore fewer lead poisoning incidents is uncertain, but this one is in the half-debunked, half-true category. Another brief food reference is that all colonial kitchens were outside to keep the heat out of the house in summer. We get that one a lot on our 1820s farm when people see the outdoor bake oven. Did the heat issue contribute to the design of an oven outside? Definitely, but we have to consider usage. Summer kitchens are usually found associated with locations that require vast amounts of fuel to prepare food for many, many mouths. Plantations and large households fit this bill. Did the average homestead need to feed that many people? No. So most cooking was still done in the kitchen hearth. The bake oven we have on our 1820s farm was another type of overproduction. That would be fired up maybe once a week to produce the bread necessary for the entirety of the following week meaning it was mass production on a smaller scale. The oven can hold about a dozen loaves at one time, meaning it was more economical than trying to produce loaves one at a time in a Dutch oven on the hearth. But it also requires a good few hours of burn time to heat. So was that a choice based on heat? 
possibly as a factor, but the main point in putting in an oven outside is the sheer use of space. A standalone structure for bacon makes more sense than creating a large cavernous open space within the kitchen. And given how drafty the 1820s house is in fall and winter, it would almost have been better heat-wise to have this large fire inside if heat were the only consideration. One of the myths that has entered public consciousness can be squarely placed on both Hollywood and the erasure of Indians from history curriculum. I can't count the number of times I've had a visitor on the Eastern Woodland Indian site ask where the teepees are. With the lack of education about the variety of material culture and the wealth of diversity among Native American or Indian groups, terminology depends on personal preference, the average American is forced to rely on exposure via pop culture. Westerns have a concerning predilection for showcasing Plains groups, Although that makes sense, given most of them are set in the 19th century during the height of westward migration and pushing the groups west of the Mississippi off the valuable flat and fertile land. The Plains Indians were largely nomadic, following their target herds on seasonal migrations. The Pueblo to the west and the eastern woodlands to the east, on the other hand, were more sedentary. Their dwellings reflected that, with the wigwam and the longhouse as the most common eastern woodland structure. Thus, let's grant the still extant groups the courtesy of naming their ancestral structures correctly. Along those lines... There was a fad in the late 19th and early 20th century to claim ancestry from an Indian group, often romanticized as a Cherokee princess. This went hand in hand with the traveling Wild West stage shows like Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickox. The fading Wild West was being idealized as the fundamental American spirit, and claiming an, an ancestral link with Native groups, one, made it more personal, and two, helped soothe some of the lingering guilt as Indians were forced into smaller and smaller reservations in the name of progress. These family stories of descent can linger today and are typically part of the family mythos. However, there are a few problems with this. The first and foremost is that by and large, Indian groups had no heredity leadership roles and therefore princesses is a misnomer, not to mention somewhat condescending to ascribe European moniker terms to entirely different leadership structure especially one often based on merit or skill. Secondly, and most important, is that people may well have had an ancestor of Indian heritage, and that is great and fascinating to delve into. The problem comes when people start claiming ethnicity, as it is often stated when it comes to Indian descent. It isn't who you claim, but who claims you. In other words, if you aren't a registered member of a tribe, please don't claim to be so. Make sure to use appropriate terms of descent. Instead of, I'm Cherokee, which presents the idea that you had a very different cultural upbringing than most European Americans, say, I have a Cherokee ancestor or a great-great-great-grandpa married a Cherokee woman. Another um, myth of the past that we constantly hear at the museum is that people were really young when they were married. And again, like all of the things we talked, there is a little grain of truth in this. And that is people of the aristocracy, especially royal families, tended to have arranged marriages and they were arranged at such a young age. And I believe Charles I married his daughter, Mary, to William. And this is not the William and Mary that's later because the English seem to use the same names over and over again. She, I believe, was nine years old and he was 14. And they had the marriage ceremony in London in 1641, I believe, just before things fell apart for the Civil War. It was a distraction to try to convince people that things were really back to normal. 
But for the most part, in England, every death, marriage, and birth is recorded in the parish records and the parish records that survived. And if you were going to go by the average, the average age that women were being married in England was 26, and the average age for men was 28. The reason for this is most people cannot get married until they can actually support a family. And it takes a long time to get an established in an agrarian world. A lot of times you have to learn the trade or become a, a laborer or get some sort of security before that actually takes place. The other thing that people tend to think is that they had huge families. And again, going by the parish records in England, the average family was between five to seven children that were spaced every three years apart. What is very sad is the infant mortality and childhood disease rate, which on the average in this time period, between 30 to 40% of all children will not make it to adulthood. And that is perhaps the biggest difference between the past and the present is that figure right there, which is absolutely devastating and really sad. Getting back to when people married, one of the things where people start marrying younger is when people began to industrialize. When you were working in a factory at a younger age, at the same hours that older people are working, you can afford to get married a lot earlier. And that's when marriages, marriage ages begin to drop from the 17th century. Those are the records for England. We do not have good records for Germany, so a lot of when people were marrying in Germany is speculative, but we assume it's probably the same as it is in Britain. On In America, though, or the English colonies, they do seem to be marrying younger, and it could be that the ready availability of land made it that you could actually afford a family at a younger age. There's also the fact that taming a farm out of a wilderness requires more than one person, so young men would certainly be searching for a helpmeet to have some assistance also in, one, keeping people sane with the company, and also just building a life out of the untamed frontier. Our final history myth is that all people in the past made their own clothes. Now, occasionally this is true. It's actually more often true in the late 18th and 19th centuries, as more mass-produced textiles made their way into a wider market, and it was easy to pick up a bolt of cloth at the dry goods store. Newer farm and household implements at the same time meant that people had more leisure time, or at least time away from their livelihoods that could be filled by making clothes. More commonly, especially further back and in areas of poor economy or isolated from the spread of consumerism, people simply didn't have time to make their own clothes. A 17th century English petticoat can take up to 10 hours to make, something that women working out in the fields or milking cows or making beer or cooking or childminding didn't have time to devote to. A pair of 18th century breeches for the Rhineland Palatinate would take a tailor between 10 and 20 hours. This is definitely a case of trusting the professional. So we hope this helped tackle some of the pervasive myths regarding life in the past. We're always happy to talk about how some of these misconceptions got started, so feel free to drop us a line or come by for a visit. As we're getting back into our busy season, we're going to take a short hiatus from podcasting. We'll be back in October with the new content, so please subscribe to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds to get the new episodes when they come out. So we hope you enjoyed Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds. We bring you historical content twice a month. You can check out the Frontier Culture Museum online at frontiermuseum.org, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You'll find background on all the farms at the museum, information on upcoming events, and so much more. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider visiting the website and clicking the donate button. 
Donations to the American Frontier Culture Foundation support programs like field trips, summer camp, and special events. We greatly appreciate it. See you next time.